So today we have uh, a tip that someone was sending drugs to Portugal and you arrest the person who goes for the, the packages, okay? Mm -hmm. So in here should be... This is Nelson Silva. He heads the criminal investigation units in Portugal's capital, Lisbon. His police codename is Ferrao, or Ferret. When we meet, the first thing he wants to do is show me these bags that officers just brought to the station. What am I looking at? This is um, pillows, and inside of the apparent pillow, there is these packages. Vacuum-sealed bags containing what appears to be marijuana. Lots of marijuana like more than 30 pounds. But before he can make this seizure official, Silva has to make sure it's the real deal. So? My fellow is waiting for us. Let's go to do the analyzing test. We get into an unmarked police car and head to a main lab that tests Lisbon's confiscated drugs. So now we're in a tunnel. It's about a half hour drive. The car stinks of weed. This part might be surprising to hear from law enforcement. But on the way over, Silva tells me he doesn't really care about people having drugs and using them. In Portugal, possession of small amounts of substances is not a crime. Silva says that's fine with him. It frees him and other officers up to focus on the sellers and the traffickers. It's socially, it's acceptable. People have some quantity of, of drugs. And the cost of arresting everybody for having drugs, it's very difficult to, to comport it in the long term. So it's not very good to arrest everyone. This is the Undark Podcast. I'm Lydia Chain. Silva operates in a society and system that handles drugs very differently compared to places like the United States, which has a deep history of targeting and arresting people who use drugs, especially people of color. 20 years ago, Portugal decriminalized the possession and use of small amounts of all substances. Heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, ecstasy, all of them. Drugs are still illegal. There's no regulated industry for buying and selling. But the policy means that under a certain limit, there's no crime, no jail, no criminal record. Portugal's decriminalization was a big deal then, but it was part of a much bigger national drug strategy. What the country did and what happened after has gotten lots of attention in recent years. Communities around the globe are struggling with a rise in overdoses and deaths. They're looking for solutions. Last month, Oregon became the first state in the U.S. to decriminalize all drugs when a law passed last year came into effect. That policy is directly modeled off of Portugal's approach. But understanding how Portugal translates gets messy when you dig into the evidence. Alana Gordon picks up the story in Lisbon. Let's start this story at Casalventoso, a Lisbon neighborhood on the edge of a hill next to a highway. This area is iconic. So we're walking on a footpath in between some wildflowers and houses. There are some syringe and needles. You cannot even compare it to, to what it was 20 years ago. I met Dr. Joao Gulau here last year, just before the pandemic hit. Gulau is a main architect of Portugal's big drug overhaul that happened two decades ago. And he's Portugal's coordinator for addiction, drugs, and alcohol. He's the drug czar. I think about this decision of decriminalizing drug use as a bottom-up 
movement in, the, in society. I believe that we had the conditions to develop this comprehensive and compassionate approach. This area, Casalventoso, became a symbol of the crisis and that movement for change. It's mostly empty nowadays. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was home to what was considered the largest open-air drug market and encampment in Europe. Here, it was very common to meet some dead bodies in the morning. The country averaged one overdose death a day. Thousands of people came here to buy, sell, and use mainly heroin. So we could see here honest families that were led to this activity. Uh, I remember seeing here uh, an old lady selling heroin by the window of the house. But at the same time, the client was so thin, so weak, that she gave him a, a cup of soup. You need to eat something, uh, take it. So there was a lot of uh, compassion. Gulausas's humanizing view came out of Portugal's distinct history and how it got to this point. No other European nation had endured a fascist dictatorship for so long. For much of the 20th century, it approached the world alone. Orgulhosamente sós. Proudly alone was the motto of Antonio Salazar, Portugal's ruler from 1932 to 1968. Yes, proudly alone. When this isolation broke, with a non-violent coup that led to a democratic revolution in 1974, drug use in Portugal exploded after our democratic revolution. Drugs started pouring in through the open ports. Heroin swept into struggling communities. Everybody, every family had their problems. By the 80s and 90s, Portugal's drug-related HIV rates soared. They were among the highest, if not the highest, in Europe. As a family doctor in the touristy south, Gulau was flooded with people seeking help. He became a leader in addiction and helped set up a network of treatment centers. Then the government tapped him to lead a group of experts, judges, nurses, psychiatrists, to come up with a new strategy for addressing drugs. You know, the only boundary that the government had put to us when they invited us to build a strategy was, okay, you may propose whatever you want, but you should stick to the United Nations treaties, which impose a prohibitionist paradigm. He says they took a pragmatic approach, focusing on addiction evidence, not ideology. Everything was built based in the idea that we were dealing with a health condition rather than a criminal one, and that the key intervention should be on the health and the social side rather than in the law enforcement and police and the supply side. And accordingly, we proposed the decriminalization of drug use and possession of use. The legislature approved their plan. In 2001, personal drug use became a civil sanction, like a ticket for driving without a seatbelt. But Portugal's plan involved a lot more than decriminalization. The country revamped its entire addiction and healthcare system. That meant expanding services for methadone, counseling, syringe exchanges, and inpatient treatment. This was a big shift. A core of these responses is the kind of initiative located at the very bottom of this hill. Crescher is a nonprofit that has a busy drop-in center for people who use drugs, a housing program, an employment initiative, and outreach teams. One of them lets me join them in their van to see harm reduction outreach in action. 
We stop in an overgrown field, and the team unpacks health information and other supplies from the trunk. Needles, condoms, alcohol wipes. The group walks through a footpath in the tall grass. A man wearing sunglasses, jeans, and a nice blue jacket approaches. My name is João. I'm João Sá. Uh, I am a lawyer, and I use more than 20 years uh, uh, now, in this moment, I use methadone and consume cocaine. Uh, and I give my face because I don't have shame to have a disease. Why? Why? I can choose other type of life because I like it. Nearby, João Vicente picks up discarded needles with a special scoop. He's a peer with the outreach team. He has lung disease and speaks softly. I started using when I was 11 years old, and I stopped three years ago, so it's a long time. I have a longer life as a user, drug user, uh, than as a normal person. Vicent says he's not here to deter people from using drugs or pressure anyone into treatment. Personally, I think it works only when someone wants to do something. If they try to force me to do something, I, it doesn't work. It, it, it depends on the will of the subject. Under a criminal perspective, everything is black and white. You either do it or you don't. Nuna Kapaj helps lead Lisbon's Commission for the Dissuasion of Drug Addiction. This commission is the other main part of Portugal's approach that goes along with decriminalization and boosting services. In Portugal, when police find people with small amounts of drugs, they issue citations, as in fines, and they refer them here. A dissuasion commission may seem like a daunting name, but in reality, it's under the Ministry of Health. There's one in each region, and it's made up of a social worker, a medical professional, and a lawyer. The one in central Lisbon is in an easy-to-miss office. The sign inside is small. Kapaj, a sociologist by training, says the process when people get here is really informal. And that was on purpose when we decided to start the dissuasion commissions. What we wanted to do is to establish another point of connection to the users. And in order to establish that connection, we need to remove all those formalities that normally are associated with the court and the criminal system, with all, all that ritualistic approach and all the uniforms and all the rules normally are there precisely for that, to avoid connecting with the person. Kapaj says fines are usually waived for people coming here for the first time. All their referrals are voluntary. On the morning I stop in, a mother waits with her teenage son who was caught smoking weed outside school. He definitely does not want to be here. Same goes for 23-year-old Daniel Martins da Costa. I was pissed because they j just stopped us like that. We were doing nothing. And yeah, I was pissed. Da Costa says police searched him and found hash when he was out with friends over the weekend. He says he's already had to do community service before for possession of an amount that's above the personal limit. He goes in, meets with the dissuasion team for an assessment, and is out within 10 minutes or so. He tells me he was asked, If I still smoke, uh, all regular, if I intend to stop. What did you say? Uh, I said no. 
and they asked me if I want help. I said no to. They said I have to. Go to a job center. He says he's actually been meaning to set up an appointment at the job center to apply for work for some time. So that part? No, it's a good thing. <laughs> the commission sees just a handful of people each day. They're not busy. Unlike the start of Portugal's drug crisis, the majority of people who wind up here are for recreational use of marijuana. Most are younger. Kapaj says that's probably because they're living at home and use outside the home, so police are more likely to catch them. Are people still using drugs in Portugal? Sure. And are people still dying of overdose in Portugal? Sure. But do we managed to reduce a lot those figures, and we also managed to increase a lot of the people that are in treatment because we made that more accessible. I would say that by now we are more or less in cruise mode. The policy, it's fairly well accepted by everybody. The network is more or less established and it's a solid network. We don't see any debate going back to what we had before. The European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction describes Portugal's drug reform as coherent and consistent. Portugal's drug policies have endured despite multiple changes in governments. But now, some worry that stability has turned into stagnation, a stagnation that risks peeling back progress. I'm a peer worker of GAT, the group of activists of treatments. So, and I work for the rights of people that use drugs. So it's a very healing job because you take the label of shame of yourself. That is Magda Ferreira. She's 48. She started using drugs as a teen when it was a crime. I meet her near an area that's a historical hotspot for drugs. It's centuries old, the streets are narrow, it's also home to lots of immigrants from all over the world. Tourism bleeds in, police cars race through. Ferreira and others worry that a new generation that didn't experience Portugal in the 90s may have lost that connection, that compassion for people who use drugs, and that Portugal is failing its most marginalized, like sex workers and older people. She sees an irony to this. I don't understand Portugal. We could be so much more avant-garde as we were, you know? And every time I have to remember this, you know, why not? You know, why not? If other people that come to learn with us are doing it, why can't we do it all together? It's so easy, you know, and it helps people. It really helps people. So what's missing? Um, what's missing? More investment is missing, of course, because arm reduction does a lot with short money, but we need money, like everything. Investment for outreach and other related programs has dropped during recessions. The overall health budget was cut by nearly 10% in 2012. Some worry about losing essential outreach services and connections for people. For Ferreira, expanding drug checking services to see what's actually in illegal drugs would also really help people use more safely. The other big lag, she and other activists say, is that the country is long overdue to legalize marijuana for medical and recreational use. Researchers are careful about how they understand Portugal's success over the last 20 years as a model more broadly. Alex Stevens is a professor in criminal justice at the University of Kent. 
He says evidence in the real world gets messy. I've been researching the overlap between drugs, crime and public health for more than 20 years now, including what happened in Portugal after they decriminalised drugs and invested in public health treatment. And it's difficult. You know, if you want to find out how these policy reforms affect people's drug use, their health problems, crime in the areas where this, this stuff is done, it's extremely difficult to come up with a rigorous research design that lets you do that. Stephen says Portugal didn't have a control group. The country also didn't have a lot of data before the change, as a point of comparison. Researchers have noted that drug arrests prior to 2001 had already been low. The data we wish we had is infinite. Talking about crime and imprisonment, we don't have great data from Portugal about levels of crime. We don't, for example, have a very reliable self-reported household survey of victimization like we do in the States or in the UK. So it's very difficult to tell what happened to crime, apart from that if you talk to police officers and municipal staff and to doctors, they will tell you that they observed a reduction in the types of crime that were associated with drug use. What is clear is that HIV rates went down as they'd hoped, as did the social and health costs from drug use, according to one study. Drug-related deaths dropped right after decriminalization. The numbers have increased some years, but are still lower than 2001, and the mortality rates are much lower than the European average. The number of people in treatment increased. But Portugal's approach involved dozens of different measures beyond decriminalization, some of which started a few years before 2001. Stephen says it's hard to parse out how much any one part of the country's drug policy drove improvements in public health, and then how much other factors may have played a role. There was also other things going on, like an increased investment in social housing, clearance of the slums where the drug problems were concentrated. Portugal, for the first time, introduced a guaranteed minimum income. So a whole range of other types of policies that you would expect to see reducing problematic drug use, as well as this combination of decriminalisation and public health measures, which was the sort of more centrally, you know, recognised element of Portuguese drug policy. Stephen says one thing has become clearer in research over the years. Drug decriminalization didn't cause the harms that some opponents feared. There wasn't an overall growth in drug use. And what fluctuations did occur mirrored what was happening in other nearby countries. In 2018, a high-profile United Nations board backed decriminalization as part of a broader public health-driven approach to drugs. Lots of other countries have loosened their criminal approach to drug use over the years. With deaths on the rise in Europe, places like Norway have reviewed assessments of what Portugal did as they move forward with their own decriminalization proposals. Debates are heating up in Scotland. Across the Atlantic, Vancouver's city council voted to back decriminalization a few months ago. And then there's Oregon. I'm a nurse who treats patients with addictions. We know a jail term isn't good drug treatment. It ruins lives. Last fall, ads in support of a proposal to decriminalize all drugs started rolling out in the state. The clips featured people talking about how the addiction and criminal justice systems failed them. This has followed me for over two and a half decades. It's kept me from uh, getting housing, apartments. An independent statewide assessment from Oregon's Criminal Justice Commission estimated that Measure 110 
would reduce arrests for drug offenses by 90%, and it would dramatically reduce the racial and ethnic disparities in drug arrests. Teshia Naidu is a lawyer with the national advocacy group, the Drug Policy Alliance, and helped craft the measure. We've had this punitive approach for decades now, and we haven't seen any improvements in key indicators. You know, we were seeing high rates of overdose. We're seeing, you know, prison overcrowding, jail overcrowding, saddling people with lengthy records that follow them, in some cases, for the rest of their lives. And all of these obstacles that criminalization poses to successful reintegration, you know, housing, employment, educational opportunities, family obligations. So the current system has proven to be completely ineffective and a failure. Opponents expressed real concerns about removing the role of courts in deterring use and directing people to treatment. A majority of the state's district attorneys were against the measure. But on November 4th, voters in Oregon approved it, making Oregon the first U.S. state to remove criminal penalties for possessing small amounts of drugs. But like Portugal's approach, it's more than that. It will increase access to health and harm reduction services, including the full spectrum of services that might be needed, including housing and drug treatment and recovery services. And of course, harm reduction is a key component of the type of services that will also be available. The new policy means that anyone found with small amounts of drugs will instead get a citation, as in a $100 fine, or... You can avoid the citation by being connected to a health screening where your various needs are assessed, and then you could be provided with linkages or connections to the various services. Those assessments would happen at one of several addiction and recovery centers in the state. On paper, this is very similar to Portugal's approach. Naidu says that was intentional. She directly pulled from Portugal's playbook. I mean, it's not possible to replicate exactly the Portugal model in the United States. But what we can do is learn from what are the key components of Portugal's success and how can we replicate those components. I think we have to be careful about taking the results from Portugal and just assuming that those results apply here in the United States. Bo Kilmer directs the Drug Policy Research Center at the RAND Corporation, a policy think tank. He is eager to study the impacts of what Oregon is doing, how people experience it, how it might affect behaviors, its impact on crime, on law enforcement, on access to and actual use of services. But first, he wants to know what the policy means in practice, as in how Measure 110 is actually enacted at the state and local levels. A lot's going to depend on how this rolls out in Oregon. And how evenly and consistently it's funded. Under Oregon's plan, tax revenue from its legal marijuana industry will be redirected to ramp up services. Some within the addiction community deeply worry that this funding won't be nearly enough to pull off this overhaul and build up services in the way that Portugal did. Kilmer says an oversight council in Oregon that recently convened will have a big role. In Measure 110, you know, it does say, look, money's going to be spent on that, on substance use uh, disorder treatment, but it doesn't say how much. And so that's why this council is going to be so powerful. 
you know, how they allocate these resources, you know, they're going to shape how this gets implemented. Still, Kilmer thinks Oregon could present a natural experiment to better understand the evidence and the impact of drug decriminalization in America. That part took effect in February. I mean, I think, for example, it would be informative to compare what happens in Oregon to, for example, what happens in Washington state. And unlike Portugal, Kilmer says he and others do have historical data on health, crime, and drug trends already as a baseline. But Kilmer is aware of the traps. Oregon was the first state to decriminalize marijuana in the 1970s. When several states followed, they didn't have a consistent framework for evaluation. This might seem really granular, but the policies themselves varied. And because they were documented so differently, it was hard for anyone to understand the impact, positive or negative, on people's lives. That helps explain why kind of some of the early results were all over the place. Joao Gulau, Portugal's drug czar, thinks his country's success can be replicated in a place like Oregon, even though the conditions and the contexts are so different. He says the underpinning of Portugal's approach were the attitudes about people, addiction, and drugs. You know, we have lots of visitors coming here, and we have lots of invitations to go abroad and to explain the so-called Portuguese model. You know what is, in my view, the most uh, important difference in our approach? Humanism. The humane way that we approach people with drugs problems. Okay, this is the key. Alana, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me and being interested in this topic. You went to Portugal last year, right before the pandemic hit. How have things changed due to it? Well, across Europe and across the world, you know, what we're seeing with the pandemic is a big halt or shift in health services, and that's included addiction services and made that more challenging. In Portugal itself, I followed up with Nelson Silva, who we heard from in the beginning of the story, the police officer. He was saying that because of the limited movement, actually, the availability of drugs has become more scarce. So they've become more expensive and they've become of lower quality. On the other hand, you know, what we're seeing in the United States um, and just in general is this real question and concern about progress being lost on supports for people who use drugs and especially when it comes to problematic drug use. Uh, we're seeing rises in overdoses. People are feeling more isolated and also maybe have more difficulties in getting services like methadone that often involve going in person to a place. So all of this is making the issues of drug use really acute. You open the piece talking about policing, which was also a big motivator for the decriminalization initiative in Oregon. Was there a change in policing or attitudes about policing in Portugal? Well, straight up, not that it was a huge focus to begin with, but again, personal possession of drugs was no longer a crime. 
So if somebody were to be arrested for that, no more. I mean, that was a big shift. Also for Nelson, what he told me is, you know, when you do arrest somebody for possession of drugs, it's a lot of paperwork, it's a lot of resources. So dropping that actually freed up a lot of officers' time and ability to go after uh, the big traffickers and focus on the sellers. Um, you know, that's not to say when I was there, I didn't see a lot of tension between police officers and potentially people who do use drugs. I did observe um, some random drug checks, for example, in the street. And people who showed up to the Dissuasion Commission felt like they didn't have a good experience of being uh, checked for drugs. Um, and at the same time, I also met with a few younger officers who felt a little frustrated that they didn't have this ability to arrest people um, and pull them over um, because that felt like they were a little bit hand-tied in how they could improve uh, safety in the streets. And, you know, when I asked this back to Silva, he said, you know, give them a few years and they'll come around and realize that this is actually a way more beneficial approach and works out for everyone. Alana Gordon covers global health for the world from PRX and GBH. Her reporting was part of an International Health Study Fellowship sponsored by the Association of Healthcare Journalists and supported by the Commonwealth Fund. Our theme music is produced by the Undark team and additional music in today's episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Lydia Chain. See you next month.